Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA, a program which invites experts to talk about their area of expertise. This week we are very lucky to have Dr. Maria Martinez to talk to us about the mind-body code. who also tell us how to live longer. Dr. Maria Martinez is a clinical neurophysiologist. In 1998, he developed his theory of biocognitive science based on research that demonstrates how thoughts and their biological expression co-emerge within a cultural history. He is the best-selling author of The Man from Autumn, The Mind-Body Code, and The Mind-Body Self, How Longativity is Culturally Learned and the Causes of Health are Inherited. It wasn't that a teaser. So welcome to our show, Mario. It's fantastic to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me. I'm actually a clinical neuropsychologist, but it's close to what uh, what you introduced. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So I'm very glad to be here, and I appreciate you inviting me. Uh, so uh, hopefully it'll be a lot of fun to share the uh, the work that I've done. Well, it's intriguing. Um, it's in the causes of health being inherited. It's this is amazing. But I'd like to start first off by asking, what is Biocognitive science. Um, biocognitive science, I, I created that. I had to invent the word biocognitive, and it's really biology, bio, and cognitive thoughts and emotions. Uh, uh, and then <clears throat> biocognition really looks at mind and body in a, in a cultural context, because most of science looks at mind and body as if there were no uh, cultural context. And that's a mistake, because we're culture in every way. Our, our cells are cultural, our, our body's cultural, our brain is cultural. Uh, all professions are cultural, even medicine is cultural. So um, it's very important. And, and to describe culture, anthropologists have been uh, arguing for years on what culture is. But it, for my purpose and my work, culture is a very simple way to, 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 uh, to explain it. And that is culture is the collective belief of all things that are important. Uh, a group belief on things that are important like aesthetics, ethics, wellness, um, uh, illnesses, all the things that, that are really matter is what culture is. And we, we, from the day we're born, we're designed, not, not, we're not uh, programmed because we're not, we're not machines, we're designed to pay attention to what I call cultural editors, which is the people that are going to actually uh, support our, 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 our life, uh, it's, it's, it's a survival. So a child is born and immediately that child will have that suckling um, reflex and will look for the breast or will look for the, for the bottle, but there's no language there. There's no symbol there. So they see a breast or they see a, a bottle and they have a physiology that says hunger. And then they have a physiology that says satisfaction And that all of that's being stored. Then later comes the language and the language says, oh, this is a breast. So this is mother. This is a bottle but you already have a physiology and then it becomes a biosymbolic uh, process because it's, it's biosymbolic. Uh, and what I argue is that the immune system is, is cultural and the brain is cultural. And that's what I'll try to explain um, while, we, uh, while we talk here. Okay, how, how can the immune system be a, also part of the culture side? Like, uh... That's a great question. And I'll you probably will not hear this anywhere. But here's the, the reason. We, we were, uh, epigenetics means 
above uh, genetics. Yes. The, the thinking is that all is genetics and uh, the environment really doesn't, doesn't affect genetics. And it takes millions of years for, for the uh, DNA to change or the gene expression to change. But here's what I propose. Uh, animals have a lot of epigenetics. They don't have a language. So for example, you give rats uh, when they're grooming, when they go, they, they break away from grooming and you give one rat a poison that almost kills them. Then the rats will groom again and both rats will never eat that poison again and their offsprings will never eat that poison again. That's an epigenetic transfer. Really? This, this, so, and, and that happens. But now we used to be that way, but then language came around and now in order for the immune system to protect us, the immune system has to become biosymbolic also. It has to respond to symbols. Uh, for example, if you, uh, not only the immune system, but the nervous and the, and the uh, endocrine system, you're in the United States and you see an octagonal uh, red sign with the word stop, you stop. And your physiology and your neuropsychology and everything will say, this is a stop. You're in the uh, Amazon jungles and they'll say an, they'll say an octagonal uh, sign with red paint and some signals. It means nothing. There's no response. But so, so in, we've lost a lot of the epigenetics because now a mother could say to a child, don't touch that, that's poison. Yes. But what we gained was the biosymbolic brain and immune system. And I'll give you an example. We know now that if we shame someone, if you say you're so stupid in front of people or, or, or someone that's important, especially, the immune system will respond as if there's some kind of pathogen. It'll create uh, um, interleukins and especially the, uh, um, uh, what they call the pro-inflammatory uh, molecules. Right. Uh, why would it do that? Well, because it has to be biosymbolic in order to protect you. If someone says you're stupid, that's, that's an insult. That is, that is an alarm. So the words have symbols, the words have meaning, but it's cultural because the brain learns the culture that it grows up in. So the, way to, the best way to explain it is the world has infinite interpretations, infinite possibilities to be interpreted. And what the culture does is it weaves a fabric around the world and that's what we see. So using the example of uh, uh, using the uh, molecules of, um, uh, of inflammation, it, uh, the United States individualists, uh, um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, UK are individualists. China, Korea, Japan are more collectivists. Okay. So it's more, the individualist is more the salient part and the Asian uh, collective is more the interaction and the group part. So if you shame someone from an individualist country and you say, you're so stupid, that person will have an inflammation. But if you say it to someone from an Asian culture, they'll have inflammation only if they see that the group or the or the family or the nation has been shamed. It's a collectivist kind of uh, a way of looking at things. So the brain becomes cultural and the immune system becomes cultural. Do you think we have lost this innate ability of transferring this information through our um, DNA or however means of communication it is to our offspring because we've um, now got a different, more advanced means of communication. Is it possible that animals can communicate through thought or through pictorial means? They haven't got a, a 
Yes, uh, not much. I mean, monkeys can learn some symbols and everything, but but they're not doing a reflective kind of thing. They're not reflecting on it. They may learn it uh, from a from a conditional kind of thing. Okay, if, if I see this symbol, it means uh, water, and they can understand that, but they can't reflect on what water is. They can't reflect on their own mortality, all the things that, that human beings can do. So what we have that animals don't have is the, the ability to reflect okay. and to be conscious of, of what we of what we see. Uh, but but again, it, it's uh, what what we lost in the epigenetics, we gained with uh, with with our language. So, for example, we, uh, we became conscious of ourselves and and reflective when we when we began to bury our dead. Uh, and we began to bury our dead because there was some transcendental process. That, well, this person is dead, but it, it, let's put him away, or or like the Egyptians, let's uh, uh, sanctify them, or whatever it is. But we became something more than than animals because we can reflect. That's good and it's bad. It's bad because we lost a lot of those uh, abilities that we had. It's good because we have the ability to advance consciousness. So, for example, a hundred thousand years ago, a dog had the same awareness that it has now. A hundred thousand years ago, we have uh, from now we have a tremendous consciousness. We're the only animal that can develop consciousness. Uh, a horse. It's a horse. It, it, there's nothing new about the horse in hundreds of thousands of years. You look at a caveman and you look at a, uh, uh, someone now, and even the brain has evolved and, and the consciousness has evolved. Uh, so we are the only animal that can actually expand our consciousness. And I think that's what I try to do. I try to work on what, what are the causes of health, for example. Because uh, what I've done is, I, I, my, my, as a scientist, you know that what you want to do is you want to look at what works and then develop theories. You don't want to look at what doesn't work. So in my case, I was looking at longevity and I was looking at longevity and said, well, what, what, where's, what's the best sample of longevity? Healthy centenarians, people who live over a hundred and they're healthy. So mm -hmm. obviously that's it. Mm -hmm. But I came with a reductionist mindset. I was trained as a neuropsychologist. And so I thought, well, it's gotta be the genes. It's gotta be what they call the Methuselah gene and it's gotta be this. What I found and what other researchers have found that genes only account for 20%. It's yeah. not the gene. Mm. Uh, the rest is the biocultural beliefs that we have, the way that we live, and the subcultures of wellness that these people live in. Uh, they could be uh, vegetarians, they could eat meat, they could uh, drink milk. So it's not one way, but it's the cultural components that actually makes them healthy. And that's why I say, and I argue that, that longevity is culturally learned. You can learn it at any age. You can learn uh, longevity. It's not, it, because what happens is that we, you see in biology, we borrow the model of physics in order to legitimize ourselves. And physics, as you know, has the entropy from order to disorder. And that works well with systems that are not alive. With systems that are alive, that are alive it doesn't work well. Complexity theory works better, which says you go from simple to complex. And that works because the brain becomes more complex when you're 30 than when you're two months old. The other thing about it too is that uh, they say that, well, as you grow older, uh, you're going to be more feeble. You're going to be this, depending on what you do with your life. So as you grow older, it's a myth that you have to get sick, that it's a family illness. These are only propensities that are triggered based on what you do with your life. So, Longevity is learned culturally, 
and the causes of health are inherited because as homo sapiens, modern homo sapiens, we have 150,000 years of trial and error, not in how to get sick, but how to stay healthy. And I've been able to identify some of the causes of health by looking at what centenarians do naturally. And that's what I'll, you know, I'll talk about. So it's very exciting. This is a, uh, a science of, 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 uh, of hope and science of, of good news. I think, I think a lot of people don't realize the significance of um, being part of a culture and having a solid foundation, if you like. Even plants. Now, um, uh, it's um, Alan, Alan Kelly's been very busy in the chat um, <laughs> section of, um, of the video. He's talking about a lot of things which are extremely interesting. So I'll just um, bring parts of it. He's, he's mentioned that even the, even the thought of going on a holiday can boost your immune system. You know, you know they, they get the endorphins fired up. <laughs> yes, it, but it depends on what you do on your holidays. So if you go on your holidays, because I'll talk about the causes of health. One of the causes of health is breaking bread. <clears throat> breaking bread. Uh, most sacred texts will tell you that breaking bread is really very important, and it's an immune enhancer. But you don't break bread with an iPod or with an iPhone or reading a paper, because that, that's a way of teaching your system uh, gastritis and, and, and reflux. The, the, the nervous system, as you know, is, it's sympathetic, parasympathetic. Sympathetic <clears throat> uh, speeds everything up and it slows down digestion. <clears throat> the parasympathetic slows everything up and speeds up digestion. But what happens if when the saliva starts to slow everything down and speed up the digestion, you get on the phone, what do you mean? What? No, I'm sorry. No, that's not going to work. Well, you go to sympathetic. <coughs> You're teaching your system gast gastritis. 75% uh, of the uh, um, successful executives in big companies have some uh, gastrointestinal problem. Because yeah, because they, they, they don't. And, and one of the things that, that is very important, the causes of health, again, in the 150,000 years, we know <clears throat> that the context of child and man are father and, and child. Yes. No not lover and child. Right. Uh, that's a pedophile, that's a, a, an incestuousness and so forth. So we know that for the immune system and nervous system and, and the endocrine system to work well, you have to be in the right archetype for the right context. Yes. So it's like, if you're trying to <clears throat> hammer something and you use the back of a screwdriver, it'll break, it's not the right tool. So one of the things that I teach executives is that the archetype of the visionary is really important when you're being an executive. But when you come home to your partner and your children, it doesn't work. You have to come out. The system breaks if you go out of your context. So those are simple kinds of things that have taken hundreds of thousands of years, but anthropology is not talking to neuroscience and neuroscience is not talking to, um, to cultural uh, issues. So, so they, they're coming up with these wonderful discoveries and none of them put them together. So biocognition is bringing together different disciplines cultural neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, um, and, and, and of course, uh, the, the clinical psychology. So the important message that you're really saying now is during family time, you, you drop all your communications and, uh, you know, I mean, drop your phone and electronics and everything, all your office tools, and you pick up your knife and fork and you start um, interacting and... Uh... <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, because with, uh, with the corporations, I look at two things on the vacations. I'm glad he brought up about the vacation. You can have fatigue or you can have, um, which it would be the burnout, 
or you could have uh, what's called empathic fatigue. Burnout is that you've just done too much and you literally are burned out and you get a need to get some rest. Yes. Empathic yes. fatigue is the uh, micromanager, the people that want to fix everything for everybody and, and then they also burn out. But what happens is that they both leave and come back with the same archetype. Okay. Micromanager or whatever it is and then of course they have fatigue again. So what I teach is that productivity and wellness are inseparable. When I work with, with large co uh, corporations, I teach them, okay, let's work on the quarterly productivity and on the wellness productivity. And you'll be evaluated on both. A wellness productivity would be, uh, I mean, a wellness uh, quarterly would be you commit to work uh, 10 hours. After 10 hours, you shift archetype. If you break those rules, then you're not going to get the promotions and the bonuses, just as if you're not going to get it if you don't go up with productivity. And what happens is that wellness goes up and productivity goes up when you do that. What are your thoughts when you see the um, teenagers on their phones and they're sitting down and they're doing the lunch break and they're on their phones? It's not work. No, it's not. And, and it's a terrible problem, but at the same time, you don't want to take away the technology. So here's, here's some things about how you can't fool mother nature. Uh, if you see someone in vivo in the streets and you like that person, you say hello and you smile, your, your brain will secrete oxytocin, which is a really good bonding hormone that's good for the heart. Now, if you're texting and you're smiling at that person from one phone to the other, there's no oxytocin, not real. So, you can see how it doesn't work. Now, what I do with, with parents, tell them, okay, look, honor their rituals that they're texting and they're doing, but they have to honor yours too. So you come to agreements that you can text all you want uh, up to 10 minutes before dinner. At dinner, there's no texting, but your texting is important and do it and enjoy it. So what you're doing is you're honoring their rituals, but also not allowing them to dishonor your rituals. And usually teenagers, when you give them options, they... But, but, but there's a, there's a obsessive compulsive kind of problems with people that if, not on, if they're not on Facebook all day, they feel like they're missing out on something and they have anxiety attacks. So that's the new I self. I call it the I self. <laughs> <laughs> um, so areas of the brain have evolved to um, um, what Kelly's asking, um, areas of the brain have evolved for expanding consciousness, the frontal, is he asking the frontal lobe, is that? Yes, the prefrontal lobe is, is the most advanced part of the brain. And that part of the brain is the one that, that uh, has to do with reasoning, that has to do with uh, being able to abstract into the future, the most advanced processes. Uh, but the brain is very plastic. If, if you would compare the brain to a computer, which you can't, but I'm just gonna do it so you can see the, the vastness of the brain. Yes. The brain, if it were a computer, it's a type of computer that the software can modify the hardware. It's plastic. And I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, in London, as you know, the, the, all the streets are names. It's not like New York, 22nd Avenue, 23rd. So you really have to have a very good uh, memory. And the hippocampus is the part where the memory is stored. Taxi drivers have larger hippocampus than non-taxi drivers. And the argument was, well, you know, the reductionists will always find some Darwinian way of looking at it. And they say, no, what happened is that the people with the bigger hippocampus will go and work for as taxi drivers. No, 
because when they start, they'll have the same size hippocampus and then later the hippocampus grows. So it's very plastic. It will adjust to whatever the context tells it to do. Very interesting, very interesting. It could actually develop in size. It actually is incredible, that thought. The um, Monica Levin asked a question. Um, it's a very good question too. Um, how do you shift archetypes? Like how do you change from work mode into home mode? Um, if All right, you... well, I'll, I'll give you an, an example of what I had to do. I was working in a neuropsychiatric hospital and my archetype there was the healer, the doctor, the, 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 the working on health. Uh, when I would go home, I would continue to be the healer and the, the doctor and, and my kids didn't want that. They wanted a father. Yes. So what I did is you have to do it very mechanically at first. I would come out of the car, uh, to, the, to the car, I would turn on the, uh, the, the ignition and the sound of the ignition, which is a sensory cue, yes. would tell me, okay, from, from healer to father. And it took me 30 minutes to get home and I was preparing myself into the archetype of the father. What does a father do? And when I got home, I was ready to be a father. <laughs> so, uh, and then what you do is you practice archetypes of people that are good in their archetype. Look at a good father, a good visionary, a good uh, healer. And then you learn by observation how they are, but you have to mechanically do it. And that's what I teach uh, executives that you have to mechanically stop. And when you leave work, you have to go into another archetype. Your partner doesn't want a visionary. Your partner doesn't want a CEO. He wants a partner. <laughs> and that is what maintains wellness when you, when you have that, when yes. you do that. And I was thinking too, when you're, when you're saying how, when you smile at someone at the phone, you don't get the same kick of what, what killed the endorphins, or whatever. When I saw you, when I started up this morning, I got a kick. I saw your face there. It's was, it was almost as if you're here. I mean, I'm, the thing is, in, you know, in today's world, people are going to be on very different parts of the earth and we're not going to have the luxury of being face to face. But I smiled at you and I think you gave a smile back. <laughs> and, yes, yeah, unfortunately we couldn't. We couldn't get the oxytocin, but if we do it in vivo, then we will. <laughs> Actually, it's a good feeling, but not the oxytocin. That's been tested. It's amazing it's how the can tell the difference. I'll tell you something even more uh, amazing. This is very recent research. Uh, the hedonist, the, from the Greek uh, hedonist, they thought that uh, the Epicurean and so forth, that, that, that life was for pleasure. That's it. You live for pleasure, and that's all there is. And Aristotle said, no, no, uh, life should be uh, what he called uh, eudaimonia, which is pleasure with service, with meaning, uh, with, uh, with a sense of, uh, of, of, of doing something beyond just the, 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 the pleasure, you know, 3,000 years ago. Now there's some research, psychoneurological research, that looked at something that's called CTRA. CTRA are a, a group of genes, an immune system genes, that come out during adversity. Some, some of them are uh, inflammatory, some of them are antiviral, some of them antibody. So they did a psychological test for a group of people that were more hedonistic than the people who were eudaimonic or who were, who were pleasure with meaning. And they measured the CTRA. The CTRA was different. The hedonists had worse CTRA than the non-hedonists but the interesting thing is that they both felt the same level of pleasure. So the immune system could tell the difference, even if you felt good about what you were doing. Wow. 
That's amazing that it can pick up on something as subtle as that. That's why it's a cultural immune system. If I'm looking at your image on the screen, is it because I know that you're not here? Is that the difference why the oxytocin doesn't get released? That's part of it because the, uh, the mirror neurons uh, are trained from many hundreds of thousands of years yes. to deal with, uh, with real things. Yes. Uh, and then we have, of course, the television and we have the movies and everything. And you can certainly have reactions. You go to the movies and you can cry and you can, uh, and you can be very afraid with the mystery and so forth. But it's not the same. The, the mirror neurons are not responding the same way. Uh, it, it's a lot more uh, unique when you do it uh, person to person. Okay, so it must be something subtle. I guess as the advancements continue, 3D immersement. Um, uh, yes, and if you're close to someone, the pheromones would, would, meet, would have something to do with it. Pheromones are like the flying molecules that we put out. That's why sometimes you go into a place and say, ah, oh, this place doesn't feel right. Or I talk to this person and this person is draining me. Well, that's the pheromones. Ants, you know the, how, the, how the way the ants work, how they can find food here and sex here. and They, they leave pheromones, they leave the, those molecules and they smell them and then they do what they need to do. So for example, another study looked at uh, how pheromones work. And what they did is they had women wear a t-shirt for all day yes. uh, and, and then they had men wear a t-shirt all day and then they measured the testosterone level of the men and the fertility time of the, of the month for the woman and then they took the men's uh, t-shirts and they had the women say, they said look smell this and rate it from one to ten uh, <laughs> of how attractive that you think this person is and with the, with the men the same thing smell this and see how attractive and what they found is that the high testosterone with the women found the men more attractive and, and the women who had the, 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 the most fertile time of the month, the men found more attractive. Pheromones. <laughs> they can't be seen, but boy, are they important. <laughs> That's right. And you have pheromones of sex, pheromones of fear, pheromones of admiration. Uh, you see something, for example, and, and, and you admire it and you want to you wanna imitate it. Uh, but especially when you're close to somebody, because pheromones don't travel very, very far. But when you're close to someone, you, you'll be able to, to notice, hmm, this person just doesn't feel right. Or I like this person. I'm attracted to this person, their intellect or whatever. It's what's going on, but it's also the pheromones that are being put out. So this higher intelligence, the intuition, yes. is this. <laughs> That's right. It's that and, and your history. Uh, intuition and knowledge really come together and it becomes wisdom. Yes, yes. Now, um, fear is important for survival because you, you avoid, you don't, no one, it's, it's like a negative sensation. No one wants to experience fear. So in a, in a fearful situation, you try and avoid or get out. Um, how is that part of our biology? Is it learned? Is it? Um, uh, yes, that's a great question. It's part of our biology, but, but it's learned. Um, a, a very uh, good biologist, uh, uh, Sapolsky, wrote a book called Why Seabirds Don't Have Ulcers. And what he talks about explains the, what, what, what you're asking here. Animals will respond to fear. Let's say there's a zebra. 
and she sees or he sees a, a lion and they run mm -hmm. and the hormones go up and, and they have norepinephrine and, and, and endorphin to protect them from pain and all those other things. Yes. But once the lion is gone, they go back to grazing and all the, all the markers go down. Human beings, what do they do? Somebody gets in front of you in, uh, in, in a car and you have the, the proper response. You have the uh, epinephrine or epinephrine, but then you keep going and, and you get to work. Guess what happened to me at work? Uh, this guy got in front of me and you, and you rerun it. So what you're doing is you're not using fear as a functional uh, marker or, or signal as it's supposed to be. So sometimes we're too smart for our own good. Uh, we, don't, we don't turn it off. It doesn't have any more function. The guy is gone. The traffic is gone, and yet you rerun it, and you rerun it all day. So what you're doing is, see, cortisol takes about uh, about 20 to 30 minutes to become uh, uh, go up to a bloodstream. Epinephrine and epinephrine immediate. That's the one that uh, when there's a car, you that's fast. Okay. So if you have a, a, a somebody getting in front of you in a car, mm -hmm. stop, get angry for a minute, and then those 20 minutes that the cortisol could turn into something bad. You say, okay, here's a signal for me to slow down, turn the music on, relax, and drive more safely. Thank you for teaching me to do that. You say to the guy, after you get angry, you have to get angry first. You don't want to be Pollyanna. Because one of the causes of health is righteous anger. My mentor found that, uh, George Solomon, who basically created psychoneurominology. Um, what, what, what happens is that <clears throat> righteous anger is necessary when your goodwill or your innocence or the innocence of goodwill of people that you love are uh, attacked. It's very important to get angry. And now we're taught political correctness. No, don't get angry about this. Don't get angry about that. And what happens is that you're suppressing things that took us 150,000 years or more to develop into a healthy system. So you have to get angry uh, and then, but you don't take it out of the context. If you do, it becomes chronic anger and that, that's not good. That's not righteous anger anymore. Different cultures handle emotions differently. Yes. Some yes. cultures, um, like the British, are very reserved, and they're told to be reserved from, from year dot. Yes. Whereas other cultures are more loose with the way that they express themselves. Some are known to be very colourful, colourful with their hands. The hands become extensions of the mouth. Yes. Italians or the Mediterraneans use their hands, and the, the British use their upper lip. Well, what is the significance of this? Is, is it better to get things out and gone rather than carry, re, you know, hold it back in? Well, uh, yes, but part of it too is what you learn. Overall, it's good to express yourself. Yes. But if what you learn, let's say the British, if what you learn is to be uh, cautious with your emotions, to not express here so much, then it doesn't hurt you as much as if you're, a Mediterranean and you're told that you have to suppress because you see you've you've learned you've adapted to that it's better overall to express but it doesn't affect the British as much because they've learned the parameters of their culture uh, and they've learned that uh, that he, this is appropriate this is not so the system will adjust to that uh, where if you tie a Mediterranean's hands they can't talk <laughs> the Spanish the Italian the, the Greeks the and so forth the Portuguese but it's a cultural thing. It, it's cultural. Um, so um, so it's, it's very important to always, you have to look at the culture. I didn't before. Before I was just one brain fits all and it's not like that at all. 
the, the, you give, for example, going back to uh, individualists and, and collectivists, you give a little test to, uh, let's say, Western cultures and Eastern cultures, and you give, them, you give them a picture of a man sitting on a bench in a park. And then you say, look at this for a few minutes, and then later, I'm going to ask you to write an essay of everything that you remember. Okay. The individualist will say, like U.S. and so forth will say, he's wearing uh, brown shoes. He has a very short uh, uh, pants. Or they're, they're really showing the, the socks. And his hair is this, the individual, the individual, the individual. You give it to uh, uh, an Eastern culture. The man is sitting by the bench, and there's a, there's a big tree next to him. And the bench is uh, larger than him. It's it's a it's a interactionalist, uh, contextual more than the, the the individual, and that goes into performance. When I work with companies in Asia, I have to be very aware that that the that the that the group is more important than the individual. In fact, when I worked in uh, in, in Nashville, they had the uh, the national headquarters for Nissan, and I worked for their employee assistance to figure out what's, that's when I started looking at cultures. You would go there and you would say, this is paradise. They had, they made good money. They could stop the assembly line anytime they thought there was a problem. They had childcare, nice offices, but they had a high incidence of, of, of problems with hypertension and fibromyalgia and prostate problems. I couldn't figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Initially, they brought in management from, from Japan, which is a collectivist uh, mindset. And then uh, an American would come up and w- would say, uh, Look at what I did here. This looks really good. No, no, you're nothing without your group. Your group did it. So it, it, would, it would thwart the individualist uh, admiration component. Yes. Later, they learned very quickly and they started training. So what I do now is I do hybrid leadership. The best from China and the best from the United States, the best from Japan, the best from the United States or whatever. And then that works because you're getting the best of both cultures. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and if you don't do anthropology, you can use billions of dollars. In, in, in America, uh, Walmart, the, uh, the mantra for Walmart, it's a smile at every aisle. You walk in and, hi, how are you? Da, 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 da. They went to Korea and they lost billions of dollars because Korea at that time, they thought it was very intrusive. In Germany and Korea, they lost billions of dollars because people don't want that intrusiveness. When they need you, they call you. Yes. So you see, it's cultural. <laughs> Gosh, and so what, 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 well, we all know what works in one place doesn't work in another. That's right, yeah. And anyone that's worked in the industry will know of these fantastic ideas that have come that have been, oh, it's worked amazing in this X and X country. Let's bring the ideals here and make us just as successful as them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and especially you could see being in China that the collectivist uh, mentality is very different. One's not better than the other, they're just different. And the brain will adjust to that. And the brain will see what it was taught by the culture. Yes, yes. I'll give you another example that, that's also irrefutable. Uh, in psychology, and, and some that have taken high school psychology and some have seen, it's called the, uh, the um, uh, Mueller-Lear illusion. What they do is they have a, uh, one line, the same size as the other, uh, one line on top of the other. But the line on top has arrows going inward. Yes. The line at the bottom has uh, uh, arrows going outward. Even if you see that they're equal, you will see the outward as a longer line. You can't, you can't, you can't change it. You try and try, and it'll be, 
Okay, so they thought that's a universal in neuropsychology. Until you go to the Kalahara Desert in the Southern Africa, where they learn horizontality in their cultures. And you ask these people, which line is longer? They say they're both equal. <laughs> so, so much for the universal uh, brain. <laughs> so much for the universal brain. Now, if yeah. someone was to be adopted as a, as a newborn and go to a totally different culture, um, how much of their inherent um, culture that's maybe passed down to their uh, you know, bloodline will be in, in their body? Is it any at all? Yeah, well, you, you do get some epigenetics, but 90% is going to be culture. 90%. And I'll give you some examples with, uh, with twins. Okay. Uh, it was thought that, uh, that well, that, that if, if you have alcoholic parents, there's five times probability of you becoming an alcoholic. Yes. And the way they proved that was by saying, look, uh, twins, which are identical DNA, yes. they have alcoholic parents, they both become alcoholics. But that's shoddy research. Good research was looking and saying, okay, what would happen <clears throat> with, with uh, and goes to your question, with twins that are adopted, one to a good family, which, which is uh, no stress or, or, or fairly safe, and another one, which is high stress and, and low socioeconomics and, and struggle and everything, both coming from alcoholic parents. What they found was that they once went to the safe environment, did not become alcoholics, the other ones did. So again, environment and contextual, okay. even the even uh, identical genetics. Right, right. Um, Monica, you asked me about me living in China. I'll answer that at the end because I want to keep on focusing on this um, on um, on this topic now. Um, now, okay, we're going to go to we're going to shift gear, and we're going to go into the secret of living beyond one hundred years old. Hands up, everyone who wants to live to 100. Well, hands up, those who want to live to over 100 and be healthy. Because it's important <laughs> to get numbers under your belt and being in bedridden all those times, all those years, or the later years anyway. So, well, yeah, to start, you have to uh, debunk the myths of aging. Yes. So first, uh, what I propose is that uh, aging is the passing of time. Mm -hmm. Today, you're a day older than yesterday. That's just the passing of time. That's all you need. Yes, yes. That's inevitable. You yes. can't change that. Uh, uh, growing older, excuse me, growing older is the passing of time. Growing older is the passing of time, and that's all you need. Aging is very different. Aging is what you do with that time based on what your culture's taught you. <clears throat> and then you have portals, portals of aging based on the culture. One portal is uh, newborn. Infant, child, adolescent, young adult, middle age, which is very important, and uh, uh, third age or, or, or seniors. Oh, All so of that, 90% of that is cultural, not biological. Example, uh, let's say that your culture at 45, you're middle aged, and you live within those portals of the culture. <clears throat> Yesterday, before your birthday, you were not middle aged. Now, the day that you're, it's your birthday, you are middle-aged, you go into that portal, and then you begin to have to dress middle-aged, look middle-aged, have the expectations of middle-aged, and get sick like the middle-aged. Mostly cultural. 
Uh, if you're in Australia, you, you retire at 70. If you're in Turkey, you retire at 55 or 45. So all of this are, are, is what I call the, um, the fishbowl effect. Yes. And, and what, the, what the cultures, the, the, what I call the co-authors and, and the culture editors, let's say you turn 45. And at 45, you're required to start saving for your retirement. But if you want to be an outlier and you say, you know, I think I'm going to go back to school. I want to, always wanted to get a PhD immediately. You have to start thinking about your retirement. You're too old for this. You're too old for that. Even doctors will go to the doctor and say, this is her. What do you want for your age? I have a, a colleague who's a, a physician. He's 75. Yes. No, 76. And he went to, to the doctor. I said, look, uh, my right knee is hurting. And immediately without any kind of uh, diagnostics, he said, well, what do you want for your age? He says, I want the same thing that my left leg has, which is also 76, and it's not hurting. <laughs> you know, you know, it's a good, great joke there. Well, you're a great joke. So, you know. uh, so then we learn that. And then what centenarians do, they live agelessly. They're not in any portal. They don't know what middle age is. When you ask them what's middle age, some of them will say, that's stupid. You find out when you die. What's middle age? So they, they, they have, they're curious, and those are the causes of help. Curious, able to forgive, righteous anger, setting good limits, uh, breaking bread. All the things that are, that are causes of help is what they do automatically. Uh, so that's the, the myth of aging. The myth of uh, family illnesses, there's no such thing as family illnesses. There's a propensity to develop illnesses within the family. And, and some reductionists will say, look, the father has it, the sister has it. Well, they live the same, they eat the same, and they think the same. Right, right. When they get out of there and become outliers, and you ask them, okay, what about Uncle Joe? Does he have diabetes? No, he doesn't. Is he different? Yeah, he's different. He's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, the, you can't change your DNA, even though you, there are some things you can do for DNA change, but what, what you can change is the expression of genes. That's a propensity, not a, a, a genetic sentencing. Um, so then what you want to do is you want to live agency. You never tell your age because when you tell your age, you're put in a portal. If you say you're 50, you're going to be treated differently if you say you're 80 or 20. That's what they're going to do. So when people ask me, how old are you? I tell them, I was born in the 20th century, and that's all you're going to get. And then they ask me, do you have a problem with your age? No, you have a problem with knowing my age. I don't care about my age. <laughs> <laughs> and next, because otherwise they, they they block they put you in a box <clears throat> and they start responding to you like that age and then you start responding based on that let's say you walk into a place in fact look i'll give you an example there's some experiments where a person so, so you can see the demand characteristics how they affect you uh the it's rigged so you walk and before you go to the actual place where they're going to measure blood pressure and things like that, you meet people that you don't know that are confederates of a study. So the person walks, you walk in and, and the, uh, the receptionist says, you don't look so good. Are you okay? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. So then you go to the person that's going to set you to a room and say, are you okay? Yeah. By the time you get to the experiment, you, your blood pressure is up. Your, uh, uh, your epinephrine is up just by the demand characteristics that are being created. Now imagine that you walk into a place and, uh, and you start acting like a young 
person, the way you dress, what do you want? You want to you, you want to look like a teenager? What's the matter with you? And they start putting you. Uh, another cause of health is believing that people love you. It doesn't matter if they love you. What your psychoneurology is going to do is if you believe that you're loved, it has good psychoneurology. Uh, example, look at the superstars who kill themselves and they have millions of people that love them. Yes. I'll give you another example. I went to Cuba to study centenarians. Yes. And they gave a little cocktail party for, uh, for the centenarian. And there were some women there and he walks up to me and he says, you notice how the women are looking at me? They all love me. <laughs> and, but, and, and that's what George Solomon called healthy narcissism. What's healthy narcissism? That they include you. But what, you know what, they, what he said left? Look how beautiful they are. They all love me, but they just love me. But look how beautiful they are. He includes them in the narcissism. Okay. And narcissists would say, look how beautiful they are. I'm going to manipulate them. Totally different. So they think that they're loved. They think everybody loves them. Uh, they don't see them. They, they'll look at somebody who's older, 30 years old. Look at that old guy, the way he's walking. And the guy's 30 years younger or older. So they have a young mindset and they act, they're active. Uh, they don't have to be vegans. They don't have to be meat eaters. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's how they look at the world. So another cause of health is healthy narcissism. But what do our cultures teach you? Little girl goes to mommy and says, mommy, look how beautiful I look. No, 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 darling. You never say you're beautiful. When they tell you, then you can deny it. So how can you, how can you learn self-love? And people will say, I, I lived in a South American country for a few years. I won't say where, but, but because of what they say. Oh, they sure. say, we forgive everything except success. So you don't want to succeed. You don't want to, a friend of mine bought a new car and it was gray. And I said, oh, was that, is that the color you want? No, no, I just bought it gray so people wouldn't notice it. Uh, so, so the cultures will teach you to not be an outlier. That is quite a common thing actually yes Mario. yes in new zealand they have a tall poppy syndrome where if anyone is successful you start losing friends and people start talking behind you behind your back yes rather than yes. celebrating this is actually one thing i do notice in china they actually really do celebrate someone else's success and if they see someone else is successful they don't think bad of them they think well how can i be just as successful money is important here yes yes <laughs> and, no, of course and this is the nomination of thought. And so they think, well, how can I become this successful? So they've got a very high, um, yeah. So yes. And for example, I went to the Philippines and uh, Philippines is, is collectivist, but it's also really good because they have parity of, of, of gender and work and everything. Okay. But I asked some simple questions. I say, you want to learn what a culture is? Let me tell you. How many people here are good uh, sons and daughters? They all raise their hand. How many people here are, are honest workers? They all raise their hand. How many people here are brilliant? They look around to see if it's okay to raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> what they allow. Now you do it with the Germans and you have to stop and say, okay, enough is enough. That's okay. We know you're all brilliant. Cultural. Amazing. <laughs> but Amazing. That, has an, that has an effect on your immune nervous and endocrine system. Wow. Now, Especially if you succeed. And so you mentioned um, earlier on that the causes of health are inherited. What do you mean by that? Well, we inherit the potential to trigger the causes of health. 
which is <clears throat> breaking bread, yes. helping narcissism, because there are all kinds of, there are pro-social kinds of things, cooperative kinds of things. Right, right. right. Uh, and they can, they, they're inherited epigenetically, but they need to be triggered. They're yes. not just there, they need to be triggered. So yes. if you have the causes of health and you don't break bread, uh, you hate yourself, you don't forgive, uh, you don't set good limits, then they're not going to be triggered. What if you're the black sheep in the family? You've got the whole, all the troops on their phones during dinner time. You just want to have a good yak to someone. <laughs> I well, feel... if, you're, if you're the outlier that I like, you're usually healthier than the family. But the I mean, what do you do? How, how do you engage? How do you exercise your, your jaw muscles? And, and <laughs> well, because then, then you look for what, those are great questions. You look for what I call subcultures of wellness. I have a Facebook. I have a private group where we create subcultures of wellness. People go there and they can say how wonderful they are. And, and it's, it's totally different. Uh, so, so for example, <clears throat> I was doing a workshop and, uh, in, uh, here in the U S and even in the U S they're careful with that. You know, you, you don't want to be conceited. So, uh, this person said, what you said was just brilliant. This is really good. I said, yes, yes, it is brilliant. I like it. And they kind of looked at me and I said, look, let's look at this. Co-authoring means that if you say I'm brilliant, it is because, because you have the capacity to be brilliant. So we're co-authoring brilliance. So what am I going to do? Deny the gift that you're giving me? No, I'm brilliant. But I'm brilliant because you saw my brilliance. So we're co-authoring brilliance. And that's how you create these subcultures of wellness. Okay. So to all our Facebook viewers, you're all absolutely brilliant which you knew anyway, you are fantastic. Okay, I've just done my bit for society. Now, what would you, what advice would you give to people now that, that are within a portal? They've, they've, they've entered the portal, they're wearing the clothes, they've got a mindset. What can they do now? Is it too late? Somebody wrote, uh, I think Monica wrote, we're all brilliant. Hey, Monica, excellent, you are. Well, that's a great question. What you have to do first is find out what portal have I been put in that I bought as reality? Yes. Look at that portal. Am I in the teenager portal? Am I in the middle-aged portal? And then be aware that you've been put there. That's not you. That's the, that's the, uh, the costume that they gave you to wear. Okay. And then how do you look at outliers who don't act like the portal? If somebody's 80 and they don't like the, like the portal and they're healthy, then what are these people doing? If you have a teenager that is not constantly rebelling and fighting, but that teenager is doing something as an outlier, is doing something a little different, then find out what they're doing. Uh, if you have, especially middle age is the most difficult uh, and the most important because middle age, if you're in the portal, it's saying, okay, half of your life is over and now it's downhill. That's a message. <laughs> so who can, who can thrive on that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and centenarians, one of the, one of the causes of health of centenarians, one of the, what I call the commitments of centenarians, is that they say, they live it, they don't particularly say, the present is never too late to make decisions. I was, and, and look at how, they see that they're not afraid of, of dying, they're not overly religious, they're spiritual, but they're not overly religious, but they have some kind of something greater than themselves. All right, so I saw one who was 102, and he had a, a vegetable garden. And I said, this vegetable garden is really good. It's really great. I said, yeah, wait till you see it in two years. <laughs> 150. Uh, they, they live in the present, but always with a future 
an expansion of, of the future. <clears throat> uh, another one, okay. uh, and, and by giving you examples, you can see the causes of health. That's how I had to learn it, by anthropologically looking at it. Yes, another one, uh, I said, uh, uh, he's, uh, he's 103. So what are you up to? What's going on? What, what's new? He said, well, I just started learning German. Somebody else will say, at your age, what do you want to learn German? Well, you're not going to be around very long. See, that, that's, that's yeah. killing you. Yes, killing yes, the subculture yes. wellness. The subculture wellness will say, hey, great. If, in fact, there's a, a new marathon record broken within the age group of an Indian who's 107 years old. Oh, my marathon God. Runner. Is he, he'd be the world's fastest Indian. <laughs> and, and, yeah, that's right. He's the world's fastest centenarian. And he started at 81. Gosh. Gosh. Another one, another example of setting limits. Yes. Another cause of health. You have to set limits and get people permission to not like your limits. So this centenary is 100. Uh, and I asked them, uh, could I see you Saturday? I really need to talk to you. I want to learn some things. Oh, yeah, Saturday. Uh, what time? And I said, how about 9 o'clock? He said, nope, I have tango lessons at 9 o'clock. It'll have to be 2 o'clock. See? They don't give up their pleasure, unless it's an emergency, to please you. They... Okay. But he gives you an option. No, at nine, I have tango lessons at 100. Uh, and I said, what do you like about it? I said, the kind of touch with a woman. Another one in Cuba, uh, 102. Mm -hmm. uh, he went blind at 101. And, uh, and I said, well, how, how does it feel? He said, oh, I didn't like it at first, but now I got some great benefits. It's like, what? When I see a woman, I have to touch her to see who she is. <laughs> <laughs> and they're serious. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. So resilience, resilience with, with uh, thriving. Resilience, not just resilience, but res resilience with thriving. Yes, and probably a bit of stubbornness too because they would have this constant cultural pressure yes. to get back yes. into their zone where they belong. That's right. exactly. exactly. How many would say, another one, a victim would say, well, at my age, you know, just it's blindness, then next I'm going to be, and, and, and they play out the script because each portal has a script. So you play up, he, he's in, out of this portal. Say, no, no, and I, I have to touch him now to see. And I say, well, why don't you just ask him who they are? I say, no, no, it's better to touch him. <laughs> so that's how they think. <laughs> what a character. What a, what a, yeah, yeah. What a dangerous man. <laughs> and they have a great, a great sense of humor, all of them. A 102-year-old woman, I said, you're really very attractive. And she said, yeah, yeah, I've always been attractive. Ever since I was a little girl, I was very pretty. No problems with it. It's so refreshing. And the same woman said to me, if you were a little younger, I would be hitting on you. <laughs> it, it, it's a lot of fun. It's great research because you, you really, you, you, get, you get inspired by these people who are years out, uh, older than you. Yes, yes, yes. It's, uh, they're showing the way, aren't they? They're, yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And I've met people too, old people that, the old healthy people that I know, including my father, they've got, they're, they're, they've got an attitude and it's all good. It's, um, they don't see themselves as being old. That's right. At all. Yeah, your father all. fits into that. He's got a sense of humor. He's curious. Curiosity is another cause of health. Yes. You walk in, for example, if I, if I were a centenarian, and I'm watching you, I would say, hey, John, look at those books back there. What are those books? They, they look at things that nobody will look at. <laughs> and you would look at me and say, what's that, what's that diploma behind you? Very curious. 
And that is the best fight against dementia, curiosity. Wow, okay, that's a good thing to know. Very good thing to know. Well, Alan Kelly, I'll use his last comment to close. He's been very busy giving comments after comments and, and you've been helping a lot, Alan. He's said, resilience to thrive. How, how good's that? Resilience to thrive. Not just survive, thrive. <laughs> That's right. Because resilience alone, it was studied mostly, okay, you just you get beat up and you get back up. No, you get yes. beat up and you get up better. better. Learning new things. So resilience with thrive is another cause of health. Yes. <laughs> it's a good point, Alan. So, um, Mario, thank you so much for your time. It's been fantastic having you with us. We've learned My so pleasure. much. I've got to confess, some of these things I knew, I knew about having a bad attitude to survive and thrive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been amazing having you on and, um, and put the science. To Thank it. you so much. My pleasure to be. And, and thanks for all the people that participated. And uh, from now on, everybody's brilliant. And you thrive with your resilience. Yes, yes. Enjoy. John, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And, and congratulations for the great work you're doing. Oh, we're doing our best. We're getting fantastic experts on board to learn us, learn us a few things. <laughs> That's right. Me too. I'm constantly learning. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Have a fantastic evening. Bye -bye. Thank Bye -bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.